If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Despite the fact that neither Henry nor Edward had wanted a woman to succeed them on the throne, that was an inevitability in 1553. And the only remaining question was, which one? And from the point of view of the men around Edward, they wanted a Protestant woman and they wanted one who appeared to be a pliable future monarch, one who would allow the continuity of the regime as it had been set up, who would preserve their own futures and the future of England as they had designed it. That meant Jane Grey, if you like, as a sort of puppet queen. That was Helen Castor discussing Lady Jane Grey. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today we're going to hear from Helen Castor, a historian, author and broadcaster who's one of the co-presenters of BBC Radio 4's Making History. Helen's latest broadcasting venture is a three-part BBC4 series on England's shortest-reigned monarch, Lady Jane Grey. And that was the subject of her conversation with our website assistant, Rachel Dinning. And just before we begin, I'd like to apologise for a few slight glitches in the sound quality, but hopefully it won't spoil your enjoyment of a really fascinating interview. I'm with Helen Castor to talk to her about the astonishing story of Lady Jane Grey, the first reigning Queen of England and the subject of a new TV series that Helen is presenting. Um, So Helen, would you be able to give us a bit of an overview of the series and the events that it covers? Jane Grey is probably known to people who know her at all as the Nine Days Queen because nine days passed between her proclamation as Queen of England 
and the end of her reign when Mary Tudor took over um, and took the throne from her. So what we're trying to do across three hours is to take an in-depth forensic look at those nine days, the background to them, the aftermath of them, but focus particularly on what actually happened, who she was, why she was proclaimed queen in the first place, and how that crisis, that drama played out. And who's who's the cast of characters that we've got? Who are we dealing with here? We've obviously got Lady Jane Grey, but there's also many other amazing people from history. There are. Um, Essentially, we have to uh, recognise that we're locating ourselves right at the heart of the Tudor family. So a lot of these characters are very familiar. Henry VIII had died in 1547, and he'd left the throne to his son, his young son, Edward VI. But by 1553, Edward, who was only 15, had become, by the spring of 1553, had become terribly ill. And he wasn't old enough yet to have married and had children of his own. So there was uh, an approaching crisis over the succession. Edward did have two sisters, again, very familiar names, Mary and Elizabeth. But Henry VIII, who was a great one for having his cake and eating it and, and insisting that he should be right about everything, even when what he wanted to be right about was mutually incompatible. Henry had left provisions in his will and also in statute law that said that Mary and Elizabeth were both illegitimate because he'd never properly been married to their mothers, but that he also wanted them to succeed him should anything happen to Edward um, before he had a chance to have children. But there were various complications to that scenario. So according to Henry VIII's will, Mary should have, the elder of Edward's sisters, should have been his heir. But Mary was Catholic and Edward was a fierce Protestant. And the ministers that he'd had around him for the previous six years were also fierce Protestants. So the idea of Mary becoming queen, reversing the Protestant Reformation that Edward had pushed forward, uh, was unacceptable to Edward himself as a legacy to leave on what he was coming to realise was his approaching death. But it was also unacceptable to the ministers around him, chief among them, the Duke of Thumberland, John Dudley, who had been the leading figure uh, in Edward's government and his closest advisor since 1550. And so they were looking for a solution to this problem. And the solution presented itself in the form of Lady Jane Grey. And that's where the crisis begins. So how is Lady Jane Grey actually linked to the royal family? What's her position in the family tree? It's all a bit complicated to the Tudor family tree, but essentially she was a great niece of Henry VIII. Henry VIII's um, younger sister, Mary, had married Henry's best friend, a man called Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk. And they'd had a daughter called Francis Brandon, who had married a man called Henry Grey, who had eventually become Duke of Suffolk after his father-in-law. And Francis Brandon and Henry Grey had three daughters, Jane, Catherine and Mary, the eldest of whom was Jane. So she was directly descended from Henry VII. She was Henry VIII's great niece. And crucially in this context, she was as ferocious a Protestant as Edward himself. So really, was she, she was selected on the basis of her religion, do you think? Was that the main reason? Again, it's it's a complicated story because 
Edward had been thinking about what he wanted to happen with the succession before he realised he was so ill that his death was likely. What he'd done was draw up a document that he called, it's in his own handwriting, it's an amazing document, and he'd headed it, My Device for the Succession. And what this document set out to do was a plan for the future inheritance of the throne of England at a time when Edward obviously hoped that he would uh, grow to full adulthood, he would get married and he would have sons of his own. But Edward's plan for the succession was that it should be Protestant and it should be male. He wanted to be succeeded by Protestant kings of England. And so the plan he originally drew up was almost a sort of academic exercise. If he didn't have sons of his own, then the line he wanted the throne to take was not to his sisters, who were technically legitimate and female, and one of them was Catholic, but he wanted uh, the throne to pass through the line of Francis Brandon, now Francis Gray, to any sons she might have. But she didn't have any sons. And so he then specified that for lack of any sons of Francis Gray, it should go to the sons of the heirs male of Jane Gray and then Catherine Gray and then Mary Gray. And this was a kind of speculative solution, finding his way around the family, the Tudor family tree and saying that if none of those baby boys had been born, then Francis Gray was to be a sort of governess to the realm. The throne was to be empty until one of those women gave birth to a boy who could be the next Protestant king of England. But this rather sort of schoolroom exercise uh, was overtaken by events in the spring and early summer of 1553 when it became clear that Edward's illness was not just serious, it was terminal. And there was no way that you could, in reality, leave a throne empty uh, with a woman as the kind of governess while you were waiting for a baby boy to be born at some point in the future, who you th would then have to wait for him to grow up. It wasn't a realistic solution. And it's at that point that Edward changes this document. He adds two little words to this document. He says, Francis Gray's heirs male, there aren't any. And where he'd put Jane Gray's heirs male, he adds in Jane Gray and her heirs male. And those little two words, and her, make Jane Grey his chosen heir, according to this document. And we know that she was the first reigning Queen of England, even if it was just for these nine days. Um, so how significant was this? Um, what were sort of the attitudes to a possible female queen at this time? What would it have been like? It was a massive massive deal for Edward to attempt to divert the succession from the plan that his father had put in place. I mean, you could see his logic. His father had written a will specifying how he wanted the succession to go, despite the fact that his daughters were technically illegitimate. He wanted the succession to go Edward, Mary, Elizabeth. And of course, what he wanted was Edward to have sons of his own, but failing that. Edward Mary Elizabeth. But Edward's logic was, well, if my dad can write a will saying how he wants the crown to go, I'm a king as well. I can write a will. And had he lived longer, it's likely he would have attempted to get this plan ratified by Parliament and put into statute just as Henry's plan for the succession had been. But nevertheless, in a way, you can see the king in the longer term, this is a recipe for chaos, isn't it? Because if every king can 
decide how he wants the succession to go and have it ratified by statute law, then in every generation, there's not going to be any certainty about about the way the succession is going to go. So to try to divert the succession away from Edward's half-sisters, from Henry's daughters, when everyone knew they were the expected heirs to the throne, it was a massive thing. And the other issue that you were just pointing out, the one of gender, was also a massive thing. England had never had an undisputed reigning queen of England. Back in the 12th century, Henry I's daughter, Matilda, had claimed the throne in her own right, and Henry had wanted her to be queen in her own right. But as soon as he died, her cousin Stephen had claimed the throne, and the result was 19 years of devastating civil war. And Matilda had never actually got to rule in her own name, in her own right. She'd ended up passing on the throne to her son, who became king as Henry II. So the precedents for female rule in England were not terribly encouraging. And that was, after all, why Henry VIII had been so desperate for a son in the first place. Having said that, the really remarkable thing when you get to the summer of 1553 is that wherever you look on the family tree, there are only women. There's Edward's half-sisters, Mary and Elizabeth. If you look at the line coming from Henry's older sister, Margaret, who'd married uh, the King of Scotland, her surviving heir was her granddaughter, Mary, Queen of Scots, who was not only female, but also Catholic and currently living in France as the intended wife of the uh, heir to the French throne, which obviously was not a great prospect as far as England was concerned to be ruled by a Queen of Scotland, who was also prospectively the Queen of France. So Henry had cut her out of the succession and no one was suggesting bringing her back at this point. But then when you look to the line of Henry's younger sister, Mary, there were only girls there too. So, or women and, and younger women. So, despite the fact that neither Henry nor Edward had wanted a woman to succeed them on the throne, that was an inevitability in 1553. And the only remaining question was, which one? And from the point of view of the men around Edward, the Protestant nobleman who had been leading his government in his name for the previous several years, they wanted a Protestant woman and they wanted one who appeared to be a pliable future monarch, one who would allow the continuity of the regime as it had been set up, who would preserve their own futures and the future of England as they had designed it. That meant Jane Grey, if you like, as a sort of puppet queen. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a really interesting point because she is often cast as this sort of innocent, um, I mean, she was only 15, very young, very pliable puppets but but was she actually you sort of touch on this in in the series was i mean to what extent was she a puppet um in the sense that she didn't know about this plan as it was being devised we can say she's a puppet she, she wasn't a, an agent in this plan she wasn't saying yes give me the throne the first she knew of it as far as we can tell the evidence as you would imagine is complex because this was a secret plan um Edward's ministers and his chief officers had been informed of it, but the people at large didn't know. And it was crucial to this attempt at a sort of internal coup that no one more widely should know because they needed Mary not to know. They had to try to 
keep Edward's death secret until they could secure possession of Mary so that she couldn't lead resistance to it. So it was a fine balance between getting important, influential men on board and trying to make sure the news didn't seep out. Um, So Jane, as far as we can tell, didn't know about this plan until three days after Edward's death, when she was brought to Sion House to the west of London and told that she was the new queen. So in that sense, she wasn't a mover in this plan. In that sense, she's a puppet. But what those influential men soon discovered, having told her she was queen, having then the following day taken her to the tower in state to take up um, the crown, uh, they discovered she wasn't nearly as pliable as they'd thought she might be. Jane was a very intelligent very strong-willed, young woman of enormous convictions. And they soon began to find out that she wouldn't simply allow them to pull her strings. I've seen the first episode. There's this amazing moment where they, you describe, because um, Jane, Jane was married to the Duke of Northumberland's son, and there's obviously this question about what would become of him. Would he be a king? And have I got this right? She says... Um, no crown for Guildford, he'll be a, a duke, not a king, which is sort of a very extraordinary act of independence and presumably not part of um, the Duke of Northumberland's plan. No, quite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what do you make of this? It, it, it's it's the first big shot across the bows of the Duke of Northumberland and the rest of the Privy Council who have put this coup in this attempt at a coup into effect. Jane had been married to one of Northumberland's sons, to his his um, son Guildford Dudley, several months earlier, and plausibly at the stage when uh, Edward still didn't know he was going to die, and there was a, a question of uh, therefore. Jane's sons, any sons she might have becoming a key to the succession. But of course, once Edward becomes terminally ill, it's clear that Jane herself is going to be at the centre of whatever happens after his death. And then to go back to the question you asked earlier about the difficulties of having a female monarch, the word queen originally means the wife of a king. The whole idea of having a queen reigning in her own right was a very, very complex one. And when a woman married a king, she became a queen. Did that mean that when a man married a queen, he became a king, particularly in a context where it was generally assumed, as St. Paul said, man is the head of woman. Women were weaker, less rational, um, more predisposed to sin than men, it was generally believed. And so as a wife was subject to her husband, a queen would need a husband, a king, to help her in the business of ruling. The assumption of the men around Jane does absolutely seem to have been that if she was queen, then Guildford would be king. But Jane was not having it. She, as far as we can tell, had been reluctant to accept that she was rightfully the queen. This was news to her as far as she was concerned Mary was the next heir, as had been accepted for years before under the old king's will. She was persuaded on the 9th of July, 1553, when she was brought to Zion and told that this was the plan. She was persuaded that this was the will of God, that she should take the throne. That had been 
a difficult thing for her to, to accept. But if she could accept that God wanted her to have the crown, she was sure it wasn't Guildford's. And she said, yes, I will make him a duke. I will not make him a king. Uh, we begin to see Jane, if she's been told she's the monarch, well, then she has muscles she can flex as monarch. And it's not going to be quite as simple as the Duke of Northumberland and the men around him thought. I mean, is there a possibility that the Duke of Northumberland's sort of, you know, his his plan was maybe to get his son to be in this position of power? I mean, this is a bit speculative, um, but he would he would be fully aware of the what what being a queen meant and the what being a king being above a queen would mean. So, do you think that it was more about getting his son onto the throne, or Jane as a as a sort of puppet that they could you know um, manipulate in in many ways? Certainly the Duke of Northumberland over the years has been accused of being this Machiavellian figure behind the scenes plotting to get his own blood into pole position and and to use Jane exactly as you say as a puppet. I think we have to recognise that this was a very fast-moving very dangerous, very unpredictable situation. We can't say that the Duke of Northumberland had been planning this for years or even months because it wasn't that Edward had been sickly and always likely to die for years or even months. He'd been ill for a lot of 1553, but it was only uh, latterly in the perhaps the couple of months before his death that his death began to look likely and then certain. So these are fast-moving events to which the men around him are having to, and women too, but we are talking principally in terms of the Privy Council and the, the major actors in public. We're talking about men, of course, because this is a very male-dominated political world. Um, we, we can't, there is no way that Northumberland could have, this couldn't have been a long-term game plan because the situation was unfolding too rapidly and too dramatically for that. But certainly seeing where Jane Grey was landing within Edward's plans for the future, and given the degree of influence that the Duke of Northumberland had over Edward and within Edward's government, then marrying his son to Jane Grey looked like a very useful prospect. And then, of course, once it became clear that Edward was dying, the plan all, you know, comes together wonderfully because, I mean, wonderfully if uh, uh, frighteningly riskily, but the logic from the Duke of Northumberland's point of view of having his daughter-in-law on the throne as Edward's designated successor with his own son, not his oldest son, Guildford was not his oldest son, but um, one of his sons as her consort, as her king consort, that must have seemed to Northumberland to tick all the boxes. Right. I thought we could talk actually a bit about about Jane and about what she was like. Um, like, do we have any sort of documents that tell us about her, you know, her character, her personality? What do we actually, what do we know about her background? It's difficult because she was relatively obscure. She wasn't in the full glare of the spotlight at court in the way that Mary and Elizabeth were, for example. She wasn't a king's daughter. But, and and, and the further complication then being that because of, what happened to her because of being the nine days queen. Um, her story got sort of rewritten very quickly after her death um, as people who had an agenda in relation to her wrote her story as it was useful them, to them to write it. But what we can be certain about is that she was highly intelligent, 
very, very well educated, highly committed to her Protestant faith. And in that context, very determined, very strong willed. It's hard to see much beyond that, <laughs> but there's a formidable brain at work in this very, very young woman. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. One of the things that I was actually wondering whilst I was watching the first episode was how things might have unfolded if she'd been if she'd been male. So in in those terms, Edward would have named a male successor and whether that would have given her sort of um, position any impetus and whether she'd have got more support. I know this is really speculative, but what, what would you make of what would you think of that? It is speculative, but it's a fascinating question. It's a it's a counterfactual that I think is really worth thinking about. It's impossible to answer with any certainty, but I do think it would have made a huge difference to her position. The whole question of whether or not a woman could succeed and could rule in her own right was still, in, in England, was still, in a sense, very ambiguous, very undecided at this point. As I say, you go back to the 12th century for the previous example, and it had not been a clear-cut precedent. Matilda had not quite got her coronation, got to be queen in her own right. She had passed on the throne to her son, but she hadn't ruled herself in any unequivocal way. So had Jane been male, it would have been possible to make a whole different argument for her succession. If, if Jane had been John, say, um, having his mother waiting on him wouldn't have been a problem because you'd just be saying, right, this is a male line of succession. We are um, saying that the English crown will only go through men, which was by this stage what was already happening in France. That rule had been established over the course of the 14th and into the 15th centuries in France that only men could succeed. So it would have been a little bit of a problem to argue that in England in the sense that, given that I've mentioned the French example, the kings of England claimed also to be kings of France. This is what the whole Hundred Years' War had been fought about. And, and by the mid-16th century, the um, monarchs of England were still claiming the title of kings of France. And that was a claim that came through the female line. But it would be possible to say that the throne of England could pass through the female line. That was what had been established in England in the 12th century, but that only a man could rule. 
And she would have been a much more appealing prospect to the male political actors with on the English political stage had she been a man because even a young man because this was political authority of a familiar kind leadership of a familiar kind the prospect that she would become a monarch of a familiar kind um, the difficulty for her being female was if you're going to have a queen anyway why not the old king's daughter why this girl that no one's heard of given that the country was not uh, religiously united in opposition to to Catholicism and and in defence of Protestantism, um, it, it, Jane's position was arguable on every possible front. Whereas, had she been male, as you say, she would have had a USP in the middle of this um, in the middle of this scenario and would have been able to offer leadership herself um, of a different kind. And I, I, I wouldn't want to bet on it. I really wouldn't want to bet on it. It looks to me, you know, with hindsight, of course, but to me, I can't see how Jane's claim was ever really going to succeed. Um, you know, in, in a sense, the the unfolding of events over those nine days, 13 if we go from Edward's death, but nine from the date of her proclamation. Um, it, it's hard to see once Mary had not been put under lock and key, how her threat was going to be contained. But had Jane been male, that would have been a much closer call. And obviously, Jane was only technically queen for nine days. Um, and to this day, we still call her Lady Jane Grey. We don't call her Queen Jane. Is this purely because it was only nine days, do you think? What's the reason for her not being remembered as Queen Jane? Uh, because it was only nine days and also because I think her sovereignty, her authority was never universally accepted in, in the country. It was contested from the very moment it was declared. Mary had already declared her claim at that point and Jane was never the uncontested Queen of England. Um, it was a claim put forward and yes, she did sit in the tower being called queen under a cloth of state um, for nine days. But just because there was a legal document, well, a sort of quasi-legal document signed by the previous king saying he wanted her to be king and privy councillors and justices had sworn to uphold that, there was also a statute of the realm saying that Mary should be the next monarch. So um, I think her status is deeply contested, remains deeply contested throughout. She was proclaimed queen in that technical sense, we can say she was a queen. But Mary would, I mean, if Mary were here to argue with her, he'd be saying she was never queen. She was only ever a pretender. I was curious, actually, how did people react to Jane becoming queen? Because many people would have been aware that Mary was the person that Henry wanted to be queen in terms of the succession if Edward couldn't be. So how, how did people react? It's a very good question and a very interesting one. Everyone knew that Mary was assumed to be the next successor to Edward's crown. Everyone knew she was Henry's daughter. Um, and it's it, just as saying that Jane Grey was going to be queen came as a shock to Jane herself on the 9th of July. Then when the proclamation was made on the streets of London, because when a new um, monarch uh, succeeded, a proclamate heralds were sent out onto the streets of the capital to proclaim that the old monarch was dead and the new one uh, now wore the crown. And these proclamations were normally short and straightforward things. They explained that 
the previous king, always up to this point, had died, and that his successor had taken over and called on all his subjects to obey his laws and to obey him dutifully and, and, and so on. Jane's proclamation, which we went to look at for the programs, is a fascinating document. You can immediately see the difference when you compare it to um, Edward's proclamation, for example, which is handwritten. It's short. It just covers the, the standard bases that I've just outlined. Jane's is long. It's really long. It goes over three pages. It goes into enormous detail to explain that, yes, Henry had been king and, yes, he did have these daughters, but then Edward was king and, Ed, and it explains Edward's device for the succession, more or less, his plan. It explains who Jane was and then explains that she is now queen and that everyone should obey her. You know you're in a very strange political world where the proclamation has to spend a long time explaining exactly who the new monarch is because people don't really know. Um, the Holy Roman Emperor um, on the continent was having to write to his ambassadors to say, please send me a family tree so I can understand who this, who this girl is. And the proclamation was received in silence on the streets of London. It was a shock. It didn't seem to make sense. Something very dramatic and very strange was happening. So it, it's clear from that moment that this is an audacious coup, internal coup, as I say, a sort of palace coup within uh, Edward's regime. They've got the lever of power within the regime in their hands. But what is much less clear from that moment on is whether the country is actually going to accept it. It's one thing to say, James Ween, it's another to make that authority real. Yeah, it's sort of, um, there's this really interesting moment in episode one um, where you talk about people being shocked when they see uh, Lady Jane Grey's mother, Frances, carrying her train, I think, um, because in, you know, People at this time were very preoccupied with the great chain of being and people's place in this hierarchy. And obviously Jane's mother would traditionally be above her. So that, you know, it really does seem to sort of flip what people know on its head. And that would must have been unsettling. It was very unsettling, not least because you're absolutely right that um, it seemed to sort of reverse the proper order to have Jane's mother sort of uh, waiting on her. But particularly because Jane's claim to the throne, her blood claim to the throne, came through her mother. So if that blood claim was being privileged and that was really the thing that mattered here, why was her mother not becoming queen? Not her. Her mother was a daughter of Henry VIII's sister, uh, Mary. So why pick Jane out of this family tree when her mother was still alive? It was a, it was a solution that had a neat political logic to it from the point of view of the dying Edward and the Duke of Northumberland seeking to um, ensure a smooth transition of the same regime that had been in place before. But to anyone looking on who knew that Mary was the old king's daughter, and yes, she was technically illegitimate, but actually she'd been heir to the throne for years herself. No one really believed. I mean, Henry wanted desperately to believe that he'd never really been married to, to Catherine of Aragon, Mary's mother. But, it, you know, the whole thing was so murky and messy. What people knew was that Mary was the old king's daughter. She was suddenly being passed over for the daughter of a woman through whom Jane's own claim came. It, it didn't seem to make sense from outside the bubble of government. 
I mean, what do you think that Northumberland's biggest mistake was? Why did um, this plan to have Jane as queen ultimately fail? I think it was always um, a very, very risky prospect. In a way, what Northumberland was doing was putting his faith in the mechanisms of power at the centre, the fact that Edward had said this should happen, that he'd got... Um, the Privy Council and the justices to sign up to the plan secretly, that then he moved quickly to secure, as I say, the tower, uh, to install Jane. I mean, it looked as though at the top, everything was working. What he hadn't done was secure those wider structures of power that I've just mentioned, which, of course, until you're actually in play, until the the game is in play. You can't see whether that's going to work or not. But I think what we have to realise is that Northumberland only had a limited series of options. It's not as though he was on an open playing field and said, oh, I think I'll do this. He was Edward's chief minister. He had pushed forward the Protestant Reformation that Edward wanted to see in his kingdom. Had Edward lived, it would have been very interesting to see how Northumberland's career had gone, because actually Northumberland's predecessor as Edward's chief minister, Edward's own uncle, the Duke of Somerset, had ended up with his head on the block, had lost his life in 1551. Tudor politics were a very, very dangerous game. Nevertheless, Northumberland was in pole position as Edward's right-hand man. At the point when Edward's dying, Northumberland finds himself in a desperate dilemma because the one thing he knows is that if Mary becomes queen, he is for the chop, either in terms of influence, power, money, fortune, his family's standing or quite possibly in terms of his life too. So if he's going to save both the Protestant Reformation and his own position, he's going to have to do something to try and make sure Mary didn't become queen. That's what Edward wanted too. How were they going to do this? So it's not, as I say, we have to see this as a sort of crisis unfolding rather than a a long-term plan in which Northumberland miscalculated. But I certainly think the thing that meant, as it turned out, that Northumberland's plan was on shaky ground from the very beginning was not getting hold of Mary. If he had managed to take Mary into custody, get her under lock and key, it doesn't matter that he would, I mean, it it doesn't mean that he wouldn't still have run into trouble. It's entirely likely that a groundswell of support for Mary as a legitimate heir might have caused Queen Jane's regime difficulty, even had Mary been under lock and key. But to have Mary on the loose within her vast fortress at Framlingham saying my kingdom should rally to me meant that Jane's authority looked from the start as though it was as illegitimate as Mary was saying it was. And yeah, what was the pivotal moment that this all sort of came tumbling down in in this nine days? We're trying to, as the programmes go along, we're trying to sort of tell it day by day so that you can see the tipping points as they come. Um, Militarily, what you could probably say is the tipping point. Um, Mary's at Framlingham, which is near the Suffolk coast. Um, And what Northumberland's plan is that he is leading soldiers from London and he's going to try and um, come towards Framlingham from the east. And meanwhile, warships have been dispatched to the Suffolk coast. And the plan was to pin Mary at Framlingham between the soldiers that Northumberland was leading to the east 
and the warships off the coast to the west that would make sure that she couldn't escape that way. There is a crucial moment when the ships are forced to come closer into the shore by bad weather than they'd intended. And one of Mary's uh, leading supporters is able to make contact with them. And those ships mutiny against Queen Jane and the commands they've been given, and they declare instead for Mary. They are carrying the one thing that Mary didn't have and had no access to, which was guns, large guns and large amounts of ammunition. And if Mary was in Framlingham with guns, then that changed the military balance completely. Northumberland had guns being brought to him from the tower, but um, it, it was going to be a very, very different matter trying to get Mary out of Framlingham if she had guns too. So militarily, breaking that pincer that was such a crucial part of Northumberland's plan, that was that was crucial, and, and the acquisition of, of uh, the cannon. Politically, the tipping point followed followed on from that because it's the point at which the Privy Council back in London, Northumberland has been sent out into the field. He's an experienced soldier. He's the one leading the military charge against Mary. But because he's had to leave London, he's left the Privy Council in a sense leaderless. He can't keep his grip on the Privy Council and be out in the field at the same time. And when the Privy Council hear that the ships have gone over to the other side and not only that, but rebellion against Queen Jane is looming now to the west of London in Buckinghamshire, in Oxfordshire. People are declaring for Mary. Influential gentry are, are rallying troops in Mary's name. The Privy Council in London turned from wobbly to uh, absolutely terrified. They realise the only way to save their skins is to abandon Northumberland, abandon Jane, and for them to declare for Mary. So that's the crucial point at which Jane's cause is lost, is when the Privy Council recognise that it's all over. Um, that's actually one thing we haven't talked about, the very tragic end to Lady Jane Grey's life. Why did she have to die? What is the tragic end to this tale? Mary really didn't want to be responsible for killing Jane. She, Mary's approach when she finally did uh, claim her throne was in a sense an attempt at unity she needed the country to rally to her. She needed to try and build bridges across the divides that had opened so dramatically and so violently in those few days in July. And so what she did was an attempt, which of course suited everybody else very well as well, to pin the blame on the Duke of Northumberland. The Duke of Northumberland had been the leader of this coup. He'd also been the leader of uh, Edward's, uh, the chief minister in Edward's government when it put the Protestant um, reforms into place. So if everything could be pinned on him and he was executed in the immediate aftermath of, of um, the events of the nine days, then the political reality could be created whereby everyone was now loyal to Queen Mary. The Privy Council, who had been Jane's Privy Council, had after all abandoned Northumberland and abandoned Jane and offered their allegiance to Mary instead. So Mary was concerned to bring as many people as she possibly could into allegiance to her, bring the country back together. And as such, once she got rid of Northumberland, uh, she spared Jane's father, she spared Jane, she spared Jane's husband, Guilford Dudley. They were tried and they were found guilty, Jane and Guilford, found guilty of treason, but they were sent back to the tower and allowed to live. So Mary was not being retributive. She was not wanting to see rivers of blood spilled in retribution for the attempt to deprive her of her throne. The difficulty she then encountered 
was that at the very beginning of 1554, once her regime was underway, it was clear that she intended to marry Philip of Spain. It was also clear that she was bringing Catholicism back and a return to an allegiance to Rome couldn't be far away. There were Protestant figures within political society becoming deeply alarmed at the idea that she was not only bringing Catholicism back to England, but was going to marry um, a foreign uh, ruler who would tie England into uh, this great Catholic empire on the continent. And a rebellion was raised in at the very beginning of 1554. It's not entirely clear exactly what the rebels wanted to do. Um, parts of the rebellion misfired. The bit that reached London was a few thousand men under the command of a, a gentleman named Thomas Wyatt. It was genuinely frightening. They did get into London. Mary had to rally her people. She gave an extraordinarily stirring speech and she managed to see off the rebels and Wyatt lost his head. It wasn't clear what, what Wyatt and, and his supporters had wanted to do. It looks likely that they probably wanted to put Elizabeth on the throne in Mary's place. And Elizabeth was also imprisoned in the aftermath of, of the Wyatt Rebellion. But having Jane in the tower, someone who had been proclaimed queen, who was a Protestant, and whose father, Henry Gray, was involved in the planning of this rebellion. So Henry Gray, having escaped with his life from the events of July, then got embroiled in another revolt at the beginning of 1554. And once that had happened, um, Mary was persuaded, as she hadn't been in the summer, that she couldn't afford to let Jane live. So it's at that point uh, in um, 1554, in February 1554, that Jane Grey goes to the block. Well, I think that's about all we've got time for. It's been really fascinating to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Um, for our listeners at home, if, if you want to learn more about this area of history, um, Helen's three-part series on Lady Jane Grey is scheduled to be broadcast on BBC4 on Tuesday the 9th of January. So that was Helen Castor in conversation with Rachel Dinning. And that is about all for today's episode. But please do rejoin us on Thursday when we'll be talking about Frankenstein author Mary Shelley with her latest biographer, Fiona Sampson. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 